Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello, welcome along. It's the Magic Book Club podcast with me, Tom Price. This is the podcast where I find out exactly what makes our favourite authors put their pens to paper or their Uh, fingers to keyboards, you know what I'm saying. What makes them write? Uh, On this episode today, I'm going to catch up with writing legend Linda LaPlante. She joined me last year to talk about her new Young Tennyson book, and she's back in 2021 with her fabulous new read, Judas Horse. It's amazing. It's such a great story. I love it. Uh, Also, all the way from Jakarta, I'm going to be chatting to Jessie Q. Satanto about her hilarious new novel, Dial A for Aunties. It's funny, and it's a thriller. You're going to love it. So sit back, pour yourself a cup of tea, or maybe finally use the coffee machine that you got for Christmas and you still haven't really, if we're honest, touched. Hmm? Why not? Treat yourself uh, as we find out just what makes these authors tick. So first up today, I'm joined by the one and only Linda LaPlante back on the Magic Book Club podcast. It's your, your second time with us, Linda. Thank you for coming back again. My pleasure. Um, well, it's all our pleasure. Trust me, I am so enjoying this book, Judas Horse. It's out now, and you ju- you just keep on doing it, Linda. You keep on doing it. How does your how does your brain do this, please? I don't know. My I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Plots yeah, running in my mind, and you know, sometimes the insomnia level is at peak, and you know, I'm just thinking, oh, I'm going off to sleep, and then I go, nope, no. Nope. He's got his mobile phone in his hand in the previous chapter. Where is it now? And so I have to go back, dig around constantly. It's like every time I finish a book, it's like the relief is amazing. And then I'm off again doing another one. A mobile phones, uh, considering when you started writing things like Prime Suspect and when we go back in time when you write the young Tennyson novels pre-mobile phones, are mobile phones a, a blessing or a curse for the crime writer? Well, I I have to say they've got to be a blessing because it means as the writer, you have to um, be much more adept at a storyline because, you know, from a mobile phone, you can very, very quickly trace where a criminal has been. Was he at the scene of the crime? We have him on, you know, all the, the... the, the way the phone works is just so extraordinary unless it is turned off. Mm. But if somebody's got a mobile phone, they know where you are. And that is a very interesting way to look at it. You have to have a plot that actually kickstarts. Um, and in, in Judas Horse, Jack War has always got his phone is his left hand. Mm. Mm. And do you think that- also now you know they're not supposed to, but uh, a lot of police officers do have Holmes database on their mobiles. They're not supposed to have it, but yes. they do. He does that. Yes, I've I've just read the bit where Jack jumps on the Holmes database. So, so Holmes database. Tell it. Explain to us what that is, please. Well, that is you know put in your name, and mm. you get the data. Last arrest in prison, out of prison. Um, you get the full um, very quickly, yeah. um, or he's held in Brixton Prison, whatever. That that's the information. It's it's like the big, big computer of all criminal activities. And with things like mobile phones and CCTV, do you, do you think uh, criminals, whether they be fictional uh, or factual, do you think they're having to get cleverer to get around these things? Yes, unfortunately, mm. yeah. 
Um, they are uh, because of technology. You know, the mere fact of they're aware forensically, you know, don't leave fingerprints. Mm. And they're even now wearing almost the identical forensic paper suits to break in. So they leave no, I mean, no shedding from clothes. Yes. Um, no, they're very up to speed. And also because, you know, they probably watch all the true crime programs like I do. Well, this is what I was going to say about you. Much like, if I think about all the different crime writers I've interviewed, you more so than anybody else, you are so bang up to date with with these things. I mean, to the point where you even do a podcast about, about true crime stuff, don't you? Yeah, well, you know, I, you have to. You have to really be on top of it. And the podcast, Listening to the Dead, is really showing, and I hope, you know, many, many young writers or want to be crime writers should listen to it because you get the opportunity of listening to me talking to the top scientists from forensic departments. So, you know, you learn about ballistics, you learn about poisoning, you learn about strangulation. They're every single specialist and you know, you can sometimes hear me getting very excited because they're telling me something that I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's very informative. And in a way, it's my very big thank you to the many scientists that have helped me. Um, I turn to them all the time. Yes. Well, it's that attention to detail that makes these books, the meticulous attention to detail makes these books tick. And it is... It's at the heart of them and it makes them so compelling. And there's things like, they're so fascinating. What I love about your books is that not only am I turning the pages for the plot, but you're constantly interested. You're constantly, what, oh, right, is that a thing? Like, for example, the, the fish shape with the burglaries. Tell, tell us yeah. a little bit about the fish shape. That was like, that was such a penny dropping kind of, there's a new, there's a new bit of information for me to carry on my journey through life. Well, it happened when I was talking to the police officer who was involved in the Wimbledon Prowler uh, investigation. Mm. And, I mean, that was a real investigation, the Wimbledon Prowler. He had been robbing houses for 10 years. Yeah. He came in, he went out, he sometimes would leave money in a wallet. So the morning they'd say, well, I'm sure I had more money. Then he would steal door keys. Sometimes he burgled a house two to three times. And um, one of the officers involved in it was sitting with me, talking me through it. And he said, the shape of a fish, so you've got to imagine the fish tail, yeah. and then look at it as if it's a, a, a place, like a child draws a fish. Mm -hmm. And he said, most burglars begin close to home. You know, mm -hmm. they steal, they've watched somebody, they know them, and it's petty thieving. And then you will see the petty thief grow outwards and further afield. And so it begins to take the shape of a fish. The more proficient he is, the wider the fish. And then at the head, they catch him. But, you know, it, it was him drawing me the diagram and listening intently to saying, you know, this prowler left no fingerprints. He knew about security cameras. And he was coming in and out of Wimbledon, hitting those big, big houses there. And, um, you know, the fear, because also very important to me is that, you know, house burglary is such an invasion of your life. You are never the same after it. 
You yeah. constantly are, have I locked that back door? No. Do I get security lights? Did the lights come on? And I'm one of the worst people imaginable because I'm always having to relock and lock a door. Did I lock it? Yes, I did. Um, and truthfully, after they got, you'd think that the Wimbledon Prowler was going to be some incredible, clever. <laughs> he ran a fish and chip shop in Manchester. Yeah. yeah. And this is true. Um, this is true. And he right? was, and again, there's the, you know, there is the ability of the police now. Once they'd got that alien car, mm. a number plate that didn't match any living person in Wimbledon, mm. it was that suspicious. Was They'd moved further out, and there was this Mercedes. They were able, by traffic control, to check where that Mercedes was coming in from, Manchester. So the burglaries would happen, you know, maybe four months apart, maybe six months, and they got him. It was him. They got so, him. so deliciously satisfying. And also, what I'm really enjoying about Judas Horse is this idea of like you were just alluding to, burglaries. Because actually, so many thriller writers, so many detective fiction, it's always about a dead body somewhere. And actually, burglaries are horrifying. Yeah. Totally. Really horrible. Yeah. And also, you know, they are now becoming so professional. Um, you, know, you do get the housebreaking in of a drug addict who needs money, to get drugs or jewelry or whatever. They're small time. You know, mm. often they're quite dangerous because they're desperate. Yeah. But these very professional gangs, they fly these people in, they give them the data, it is very carefully planned, and they are becoming very, very violent. And funnily enough, today, there's, um, it was Ant or Deck, his mm. house was, um, whilst he was inside with his wife and baby. And, uh, you know, they tried to break through. They couldn't get through the gates. Yeah. Um, but it was a gang. And, you know, in the Cotswolds, where I've set most of the big burglaries, mm. uh, there are huge properties. But they're at the end of a country lane. There's not the CTV cameras. There's not the security available. They may have their house secure mm. and armed and alarmed, etc. But the actual in and out... You can get people going moving, and then you have people renting. You have people renting phenomenally beautiful homes, yeah. and you have the second side of uh, burglary, which is somebody that says, "Oh well, I, 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 I'm insured. I don't care." Yes, and so you know, much money. I don't want to they, take they, it any they, further. I have money. Don't. Yes, why bother the police? And, and also that that added element, certainly in this this Cotswold world, which you take us to, of. What will the they get away say? with it? You see them. Yeah, yeah, but also this worrying about their neighbours and the kind of the social status when that's all mixed in. The whole thing is quite a yeah. potent combination. Yeah. Why did you go for the Cotswolds? Because it's, it's such a well-known place, and with so many famous people living there, and you have got you know movie stars renting. Yeah. And you've also got a number of other very famous people who say, oh, "Yes, I collect Andy Warhol." Well, can you imagine what that's like? Somebody suddenly goes, we've got Andy Warhol in that property. Let's do it. And you yeah. keep, I don't know how I get very fortunate. You know, I'm chatting to somebody and they suddenly give me a piece of information. And whilst I'm researching it, and this person was just saying, 
that he was in the Cotswold and he was burgled. And he said, I'm so shocked that I'm burgled because I live very close to David Cameron. And I said, what? He said, well, he has an armed guard 24-7. He said, but only when he's there. And he said, oops, there's another bit of info. <laughs> there you go. When the, when the flag goes down. They'll jump. Yeah. They'll jump in. Um, so, so Detective Jack War. He's back. This is his second book, Judas Horse. Yeah. Uh, how how is it when you when you set about a new main character? How, do you, do you miss Jane Tennyson? What do you think Jane Tennyson would make of Jack War? Could they ever meet? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the thing about Jane Tennyson, she lives on with me because of writing the young Tennyson all the time, mm. and so. You know, when we talked earlier about mobile phone, you know, I'm working, uh, going through the 70s and 80s with Jane Tennyson, um, where there was no mobile phone and there was no CTV and there was no DNA. But mm. um, so I'm constantly growing Jane up to be the character that, you know, is so well known, played by Helen Mirren um, in the first prime suspect. But by then, we know how that woman got to be so calm, so dedicated, and so able to use and, you know, cope with discrimination. Um, so she's always around. But I wanted to create in Jack War a detective that we don't usually see because he is not an alcoholic. He doesn't have a drug habit. Uh, and he has a wonderful partner whom he absolutely worships. Mm. He's going to father a new baby girl. And he's just somebody that begins with very little ambition. And what he does have is an intuitive ability to size people up. He wasn't mm. taught it. It's natural. He just has it. And the reason I like him is he's not really a team player. He's, he's an outsider. He tries to be a team player, but he can't. He's an outsider. And, you know, he's somebody that suddenly gets that, that brick on the back of the head, and he thought, I've missed something here. I'll go back. And the more you like him, the more you actually begin to see he is a risk taker. He's quite dangerous, really. Yes, yes, yeah. He's, uh, there's a moment in uh, Judas Horse when he sets about on his... I don't want to give any spoilers away, but he gets himself ready to go and, and meet a very bad person. And, yeah. you know, he's with his new, brand new baby. And I'm just reading it thinking, you, you're, in, you're heading into danger. And he seems completely unaware of that. He seems just so focused, so tunnel vision on his job, so obsessed with, with doing that. Yeah. He doesn't seem yeah, to Yeah, I'll tell you something funny. I went to the bank in the Hamptons in America. Excellent. And um, I wanted to deposit some money. And, you know, I asked if I could see somebody because I was bringing it in from London and I wanted to change pounds into dollars and it's as if you were robbing a bank. And it was um, this, you know, just a local bank in the Hamptons. And um, they said, oh, you better speak to one of our um, main people here, Michael Devoy. And I said, oh, that's a very unusual name. And so... I met him. He was enormous. 
He had the biggest bum I've ever seen in my life. But I loved his name. And I said to him as I was leaving, would you mind if I use your name? And there he is. He's a character in, in the book. Now, the question is, does the character in the book also have a big bum? No. <laughs> You've improved I him. Thought, I thought I'd better not give him a big bum as well. as <laughs> No, I mean, he's kind of sexy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, he's sexy. Well, that's what you want in a bad guy. Um, let's not, I don't want to give, I mean, we mustn't give any spoilers away. It's such a, it's such a fantastic read and we, we don't want people to, to find out what happens. Um, so, so, Linda, these books now, you've got Jack War, this is your new guy. What What's next? Do you go back and do you dabble with a bit of young Tennyson or do you, you plough on a new furrow with Jack War? Um, I've already shaped a new Jack War to come oh. after Judas Horse. And then I'm completing a new Tennyson, and that's called um, Unholy Murder. So that's the next one out of the trap. And it does, it does feel like they're out of the trap. You know, yes. There's one gone, oh, down to another. And I, I get into such a kind of fury of energy, um, and then you finish them, and, and it's like, I've got to start another because I don't want to lose this energy. And so yes. I'm, I'm always... We're working, really. And because of the pandemic, mm. I think my publishers are about ready to wave the white flag and say, Linda, stop <laughs> writing. <laughs> but I can't because I really love it. And it, you know, I know it's been very hard for so many people. Um, and I haven't been out. I haven't been out for 18 months. You're joking. So you that's fully, why you fully, fully shielding then? Yeah, that's why I'm oh, writing Linda. so many books have been oh. locked and chained in here but um you know a lot of people have had a lot harder than me because i've been able to go to the park walk yeah and i have a garden um but oh this laptop oh dear oh dear you, you, you are you are properly possessed by your writing aren't you as much as any writer i've ever met doing this podcast you are possessed by your writing yeah i am do you ever because do you ever you, switch the brain off? Do you ever do you ever escape from that, or are you always ticking along? Uh, I wish I could. Wish I could. Somebody was telling me recently about a very famous writer who, during the pandemic, he thought, "Oh wow, I'll be able to really write," and he couldn't write anything. Mm. He just, you know, became kind of staring at the blank screen. Whereas I am like a boxer getting ready to go into the ring. You know, I get myself so hyped up because of the insomnia where I've been talking to the characters all night instead of sleeping. By the time I get up, get the coffee, get the toast, I'm ready to rock and roll. And yeah. um, it's like I've got to catch up everything that I had in my head last night. Um, and then... I crash out around about, you know, mid-afternoon. Okay. And you know what I watch? <laughs> Midsummer oh, Murder. Of course you do. Of course you do. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, you know, something very funny because if I hadn't been a writer and I was still an actress, I know I would have been one of the barmaids in Midsummer Murder. Oh, would you like a point, sir? <laughs> <laughs> I see all my old friends getting older. Are you, 
Are you never tempted to to do a Stan Lee and and rock up in in the no. TV adaptations? No, no, the boredom leather, terribly boring. Yes. No, you've got ten minutes where you work. The rest of the day you're hanging about, going to the butty wagon. And the other thing too is you just see people of my age, you know, where I would be. And I thought, oh, God, that would be me playing the old bag landlady or something or some dreadful thing. And I just, you know, I find it quite sad sometimes that I see all my friends who were so young and so excited by their acting career, and there they are, thumping mm. out the same performances. Mm. <laughs> and also in Midsummer Night's Murder, I get very confused because the man that the actor that took over from John Nettles, he was a murderer in one of them. Neil, and yes. I'm watching this thinking, he, is he the detective? He was a murderer <laughs> last week. Well, that <laughs> happens in that that happens in Death in Paradise as well. Ralph Little is the new detective in Death in Paradise, but he was in series three as a he wasn't a, no spoilers, but actually no, maybe he was the murderer. Anyway, he was in an episode as a completely different character. What's going but, on? But you see, do they think we don't notice? I know exactly do what he, I said. And the other thing that I also noticed, no wonder I used to get the most awful parts because the same actresses are in everything. Yes, and I, I think, my God, they've got that same actress again. There she is. She's in one thing after the other. If she's not in Poirot, she's in Midsummer Murder. And it was no wonder I was half the time out of work because I just didn't fit in. I obviously didn't know the casting director that well, but no. And was, so I pass out around five o'clock. Was there ready an epiphany? For the gin and tonic. Yes, well, aren't we all? Was there, was there an epiphany when you were working on Rent a Ghost or when you were doing your acting when you were just like, get me a typewriter, I've got an idea? Was there a moment? Do you remember that day when you went, do you know what? I need to, I need to write. This is ridiculous. Well, I remember the moment where um, I was in such a dreadful show that was so tedious. And I just said, you know, I wouldn't mind having a go writing which is very mm. egocentrical of me because, you know, it isn't have a go. <laughs> but I did have a go and um, everything was turned down. But one of the stories that I submitted was called With the Widows. And it was turned down and somebody had scrawled across it, this is brilliant. I have no idea who that was. Oh. Um, and I reworked it and reworked it and um, sent it to Verity Lambert, which is, again, you know, when I'm talking to young writers, I'm always saying, find the right person. If you send a thriller to a comedy department, they won't, they won't even read it. Yeah, you know, and yeah. Verity Lambert was at the peak of her career. You know, she was doing Minders. She would do all the wonderful cop shows, the Sweeney and everything. And... Um, I just sent this one page, very carefully plotted treatment, but it was one page. Mm. And for the first time, I used my married name, Linda Laplante. <laughs> you know, not the acting name. That's and when right. I went in, yes. she looked at me and she said, oh my God, is it you? You're Linda Laplante? And I said, yeah. She said, oh, we all thought it was a transvestite trucker. And I went, ha, 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 ha. And anyway, 
the lesson began. You know, she taught me the, she was the best editor, the finest um, encouragement any writer could have. And I learned my trade from her. And not easy back then, and no. some would say not easy still now, to be a woman doing that job, especially in that department. That felt like, feels like a very man's world back then. Yeah. Also, you know, it was very funny because I truthfully thought I'd written myself apart in Widows. I even called the character Linda, and I thought, right, you know, yes. I'm going to play this. They can't take this one away. But by the end of the process of researching and writing, and finding the real characters and then putting them onto the page, I'd written myself out. I wasn't right for anything. How funny. And there was a moment when Verity said to me, what part do you want to play? And I said, I'm not right for one of them. And the sigh of relief could be heard through the walls. <laughs> but uh, that was the end. I never acted again. And that was that, and you and you and you would never break that spell. You would never go back on it in front of a camera. Never, never. That was it. Over, done with. And mm. also, you know, the emotion of seeing—you know—they call them dailies when they've shot parts. You know, been filming all day, yeah. and I used to sit in this edit room and watch. And it—it it was such a powerful emotional moment to see what had been in my head what I'd written down on the screen. And, you know, you had people like Anne Mitchell as Dolly Rawlins that was blowing through the screen. She was so amazing. And I hadn't ever felt that excited. Hmm. So, I mean, but it's just so unusual to hear an actor being able to hand over the limelight like that. But I guess because you were now the one shining the light in a different way and you were contented and, and look look what you went on to. I mean, who, who could have imagined when you sent that one pager that it would lead to this career, Linda? I know. It is amazing. This is, again, another thing when I'm working with students to say, get that treatment. You know, learn how to write down an idea. Don't cloud it with various characters and locations. Get to the plot. And with The Widows, you know, it was one page. Hmm. Um and so it's the learning progress and, and also as a novelist, continually learning. You know, as you said earlier about, you know, what's it like to now have a mobile phone where you get information so quickly? Mm. How as a writer do you deal with that? Well, you've got to top it. You have to mm. find more to write, but also be aware of how fast from one mobile phone, detection can happen. And also, you know, people still believe that they could delete things off their phone. And they can't. Nothing can't. is deleted. You're all in the ether. Oh, the digital forensics. I mean, that's a whole new podcast. In fact, a podcast which you are making, of course, Linda, which we, we mentioned yeah. earlier on. Yeah. Uh, reminder, so that, that's called Listening to the Dead, isn't it? That's the podcast yes. that you do. Yes, yes. And we're in our second season now. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, But it's so great to hear the professionals talking. Yes. You know, yes. how long it takes to get, you know, poison. When, I mean, the uh, scientists talking about poisons and um, she was saying that by the time she gets the poison, it can be just minuscule samples. So, you know, they've done the autopsy or the post-mortem and um, 
you know, often she's the last person they will come to to say, is there something suspicious? Hmm. And then her tests and she'll say, yes, it's arsenic. And then you're aware. Um, so you don't automatically. And if you think how many, you know, murder mysteries you've seen where somebody's over a body and they go, it's arsenic. Mm. The arsenic. <laughs> it's not how it works. Not how it works. No. Uh, weeks. Uh, toxicology reports weeks 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 this is why your books are so thrilling they are like they're like thrillers but with a a a documentarian kind of approach to the facts it it is just wonderful stuff linda and i I never tire of reading your stuff i'll never tire of talking to you as well thank you thank you for coming back uh, my pleasure thank you so much so nice to talk to you and uh, we'll see you next year for the next one yeah I hope so. I hope Excellent. so. An absolute pleasure, as always, to talk to Linda Laplante. Talk about being at the top of your game for a long time. She just keeps writing fantastic books. I read it in about two days. It's just so, so good. Proper page turner. Judas Horse is fabulous, and it's out now. So joining us now on the podcast, we've got a brilliant writer and the very enormous brain behind a fabulous new book. It's called Dial A for Aunties. Uh, and joining us all the way from Jakarta, uh, it's Jesse Q. Satanto. Jesse, good morning. Hello. Hi, good morning, or actually good afternoon where uh, where I am. So. Yes, yes. Hi. I mean, we have to do this. This is kind of obligatory. Whenever we've had uh, people on the podcast who aren't in the UK, I have to waste at least 10 minutes saying things like, what time is it there? What's the weather like there? <laughs> tell, tell us what you're looking at. So can you just paint a very quick, uh, efficient picture oh for gosh. us, please? Uh, yes, okay. It's three in the afternoon here, and the weather here is really hot and very, very sunny. Um, I am looking at the mess that is my house. Because, you know, of course, my house is always a mess. <laughs> is it, by any chance, based on uh, on what I've read of your book, is it a lovely, chaotic place, by any chance? Uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, my gosh, yeah. How did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> that, that describes it perfectly. It's just, I, I've so in, I'm so enjoying reading Dial A for Aunties because of that... Well, because of the, the lovely chaos, which uh, which we I think we can all relate to. I mean, maybe we can't relate to perhaps more uh, the more dark, uh, murdering parts <laughs> of the book. But let's not give any spoilers away. Um, but but that must be you know is that part of you? Was that a no brainer for you to inject that sort of energy into this book? Yeah. So that part um, about injecting humor was literally like the easiest thing I have ever done in my writing. Um, it just came so naturally and I had no idea, um, what the aunties were going to be like before I started writing. And then as soon as I started writing each scene, I was like, of course, you know, big aunts and second aunts are just going to like hate each other for whatever reason. And, and of course, you know, the mom was like going to have friction with fourth aunt and, you know, oh, just to clarify. Um, for my own safety, uh, that this is in no way based on my mom and her sisters. Like, in no oh, way. Well, that's the next question, <laughs> Scuppers. That was, I had a lovely question all set up saying something along the lines of, so obviously your actual family in real life must be mad. But you do, you have a, a large family, right? You, you surely, yeah. surely the family, without saying people are the same, the dynamics must be similar to real life. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh, you know, people a- keep asking me this question, like, who is it based on? And I'm like, no, like, my family would kill me if I told you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
love it. It's, a problem. it's what happens if you write books like this. This is the problem, Jesse. Exactly. <laughs> you've got to be careful. You've got to put a big. You've got to slap a big thing at the beginning saying these are not based on real characters, and we still won't believe you. I know, <laughs> but I was really, really cunning, and I, I made sure to like mix and match personalities. Um, so even my when my mom read it. She was like, wait, like, who is Big Ant, you know, based on? Because she's not like our Big Ant. And I was like, no. And then I told her who she was based on. And she was like, oh, my God, of course. So who is it then? Who is she based on? No, I can't tell. We were so close. We were so close. So, so do you, so, so tell us about your family then. Do you have, do you have a massive unwieldy family like in this book? Yeah, yeah, because uh, my family is a family of immigrants. And so I, I really wanted to kind of bring that into the story. And it was just so fun to be able to kind of show, you know, how wonderful and messy it all is. And I have kind of like a similar relationship with my parents, um, as the main character does with her mom and aunts, um, in that you know, we have a real language barrier going on between us. So I, I was raised in Indonesia up until I was seven years old. And then I was sent to Singapore. And the first language in Singapore is English. And so I kind of, um, I have a seven-year-old vocabulary of Indonesian language. Right. <laughs> so then okay. whenever I speak to my parents, I, I'm using like, you know, the words that a little kid would use, which is so embarrassing. Um, but <laughs> that's just how it is now. And, <laughs> and now uh, my kids, you know, they speak English um, to my parents. So then my parents are like, they're just uh, constantly struggling to understand, you know, each other. Mm. And that is that is really apparent in the book when you've got the you know your the the aunties are constantly tripping over phrases and yeah all, all of this stuff. It's such a it's such a rich book. It's got such a huge hinterland because it's got all the cultural things. It's also got the, mm. the beating heart of it is this hilarious thriller plot, which you know is is just a fantastic idea, and I love it. I mean, it is. I don't really <laughs> want to give anything away. Suffice to say, trust me. By page twenty, that's it. You're locked in the book until you finished it. <laughs> so you're not going anywhere. Um, but then it's also got so many, it's got so many layers to it. You've got things like, like food, for example, Jesse. food is a really important yeah. part of this book, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it so is. It's because I'm such a glutton. I'm always like thinking about food. <laughs> <laughs> so it is such a part of our culture too. So my husband is English. And when he first came to visit, uh, Indonesia, it's like the one thing that he said, he was like, Okay, so basically all you guys do is just like you wake up, you eat, and then you get in the car and then you go somewhere to eat and then you go back into the car and then you drive somewhere else to eat. And, then you, and I was like, yeah, what's wrong with that? And he was like, nothing. I'm, I'm just, you know, it's, it's just interesting. Well, obviously he's got no problem with it. He's married into it. He's chosen yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. But it's hilarious because you've got this incredible moment and, uh, you know, you've got an incredible drama and something, a proper life-changing disaster is unfolding. And, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 Medi gets home. Medi is the main character of this book. She gets home and her mum and her auntie start making cups of tea and food. It's wonderful. <laughs> oh my 
god no that actually happened um okay well minus you know the dead body um sure. um at one point something happened and it was like sort of uh an an emergency like you know it wasn't there was nothing illegal or anything but there was like a slight emergency and so we were all kind of like wondering oh what to do and so then my parents were like let's call um you know seventh aunt and fifth uncle to come help and then they were like oh no we can't we can't call them yet because we need to prepare food for them first and i was like are you kidding me like we have a real emergency <laughs> and they were like no we can't have them come over to help us with anything you know and then not serve them food so oh, then amazing. the emergency had to wait until we were able to like you know get uh, a real like feast going before they could come over and then we were like okay now they can come over and help us with this emergency <laughs> oh, that is so funny i mean it's a lot i guess like plumbers in this country you can't have a plumber in your house unless you give them the big mug full of tea it's the same thing <laughs> Yeah. It's the same thing. If, you, if you've got no tea in, you're not going to fix your plumbing emergency. So that, yes, that. exactly. Um, now you went to Oxford, so so a, a bit of the action mm -hmm. takes place in Oxford. Um, tell us a bit about your time uh, at Oxford, please. Yeah, so I did my master's uh, in Oxford University, and that was where I met my husband, um, and that was. That was interesting because I, 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 I never in a million years thought that, you know, I would end up with an English guy because um, it just seems like the, <laughs> the opposite of everything that is like Chinese Indonesian, like, because, you know, my family and I are just so chaotic and so loud and so flappy. And my husband is like very, very... Um, well-mannered and and very eloquent and quiet um there's, <laughs> so a, was a there's such a lovely moment when there's, there's such a lovely moment when i guess this is what you're drawing on when when Medi gets back to oxford and she's in the car with her her boyfriend's parents and yeah that that and she's yeah. stunned at how quiet and and restrained they yes. are i sort of I, I didn't realize we still we still are the british race we're still a restrained bunch aren't we <laughs> Every time I speak with my parents, my husband, like, you know, well, we've been married 10 years now, so he stopped doing this, but he, he was doing it for like the first few years. He would like rush in and he'd be like, what's wrong? You know, what's happened? <laughs> all, all of you are shouting. And, and I'm like, oh, no, we were just discussing like where to go for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> of course you were discussing where to go for lunch. Of course, yeah. see above. We've already established very, that's what you Very passionately. <laughs> Yeah, it's the most important conversation. Um, now, the other most important conversation we should have, which is really exciting, really exciting, Jesse, uh, is Dial A for mm -hmm. Aunties. And I'm not surprised because it leaps off the page. It's leaping off the page onto our TV screens. Tell us what's going on there, please. Yes. Uh, I'm so excited about it. So it's um, going to be a Netflix movie. Um, and we have a director attached, um, who is Nanachka Khan, who um, directed always be my maybe um which was of course like such a huge hit um and we have a screenwriter attached so um we should be seeing a script 
uh, very soon. And I'm very excited about that. I bet you're excited. I bet you're excited. Mm-hmm. And and do you, the, when, when the screenwriter was attached, were you tempted to sort of screenwrite yourself or did you feel like you'd step back and let them do it? Oh, I mean, I know nothing about writing um, screenplays. So I was like, oh, please, you know, um, like take it out of my hands because I will for sure ruin it. Um, but the screenwriter that they have, she's so, she's so amazing. And um, we've been keeping in like close contact uh, with her asking me a lot of things like, um, you know, what phrases would the aunties use in like whatever situations and things like that. So I'm really looking mm. forward to reading the script. It's just like... Come on, let's just just take a moment because you you know you've talked on social media about you know your parents telling you to stop writing because your books weren't getting picked up because your books weren't selling mm-hmm. and and here we mm-hmm. are you, you're very casually doing this you're very casually discussing being on Netflix this is a great mm-hmm. success story I'm so pleased for you <laughs> thank you so much yeah I, I never I really honestly never thought that this would happen it's insane. And what, what in, in the darkest hours when you're trying to write the books, when you're, you know, and we ask this to our authors quite a lot, uh, how do you keep that belief? What, what makes you compelled to keep going? Asian guilt. <laughs> <laughs> ah, great. Can I have some of that? Because I am so lazy. I need some of that. <laughs> Everyone I, I talk to about this, they're like, oh, can I have some of that? Like, can I borrow your parents to, you know, guilt me into doing this? <laughs> That is, they, that we should set up some sort of uh, email accounts. Asian girl who just email me once a day saying, what have you achieved? What have you done? Yes, exactly. Um, I'm not even kidding when I say this too, because um, it's so funny. Like I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old and the five-year-old is like in um, kindergarten. In yeah. kindergarten. And she has like this class um, that she takes uh, every week. And at first I thought like, it's humanities or whatever. Um, but then it turns out, you know, I, I now I call it, oh, it's her Asian guilt class because <laughs> I was listening in. It's an online class, right? Because of COVID. And yeah. I was listening in to one of the sessions and the teacher was like, okay, kids, like, you know, what is the biggest virtue? So the kids were saying, you know, love and kindness. And it was so sweet and so sincere. And then this teacher, um, this lovely Chinese lady, she was like, no, you're all wrong. The biggest <laughs> virtue is hard work. And without it, you are nothing. <laughs> like, all these like five-year-olds, okay, including mine, they were like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, oh my God. Do you, they do start you, them young. Do you contradict that with her or do you say, yep, it's hard work? Or do you say, listen, it is kind of love and <laughs> kindness and it's happy. Like, what do you do in that situation as a parent, please? So, I mean, I, I let, okay, I'm a coward. So obviously, you know, I, I didn't say anything do, during the lesson. But afterwards, I, I asked my five-year-old, I was like, hey, um, you know, that, that lesson, like, what did you think about it? And she was like, what lesson? And I was like, okay, never mind. (laughs) That is so classic. When you try, you try and teach them life lessons and you forget their brains are basically sieves. Yeah. Yeah. They're basically sieving for gold. Every now and again, a little bit of gold stays in their brains, but the rest of it is just down the stream out to sea. Gone. Yes. Um, I mean, that is, and and we, you know, it's, makes me even more impressed by what you've done Jesse. you've got a five-year-old and a two-year-old and you're writing these books how do you how on earth do you carve out time to do that 
oh gosh, you know, ironically, I am so much more productive um, ever since I had kids because now I have like a really hard deadline that I need to stick with, um, which is like, I know that I can write for an hour or an hour and a half in the morning before they wake up. And as soon as they wake up, like that's it, right? Like my day is gone. Um, so I actually get so much done in that one and a half hours. Um, and I get really angry when I think about like my past self where I'm like, oh my God, you had all that free time. What were you doing with it? You slump. Ah! <laughs> it's so true. But it's all right. You can tell yourself you were just building up the life sediments to write all this brilliant stuff. It's fine. That's what I do. Yeah. Yes, just, exactly. Just life experience. Yeah. You're so right. Yes. Just do that. Always, always. You know, this is an important life lesson. This is what makes you happy. Yes. Rationalizing <laughs> your own laziness. That's that's the yeah. most important value. Um, Jesse Q Satanto, mm -hmm. congratulations on uh, Dial A for Aunties. It's hilarious. It is just got the most huge amount of love put into it, and also it's just a great thriller. It's absolutely brilliant. So congratulations uh, on Dial A for Aunties. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us all the way from Jakarta on the Magic yep. Book Club podcast. Yay, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. How fantastic is Jesse? Absolutely amazing. I loved Dial A for Aunties as well. Loads of fun to read. It's set all over the world. The story bounces from page to page. There's all sorts going on. Really, really good. Dial A for Aunties. It is out now. And that's all I've got time for this week on the Magic Book Club podcast. Thank you so much for downloading. If you enjoyed it, why not subscribe? Why not write us a review on your podcast platform? It all helps. Uh, and also head over to magic.co.uk to see the rest of our April picks. And in the meantime, happy reading. Hold up. 